All right, a couple of announcements. Just a reminder that we're having our annual congregation meeting immediately after church uh, Sunday, February the 5th. February the 4th is a busy morning. We are going to have our men's prayer breakfast at 7.30. 9 o'clock there will be a deacon's meeting. At 10 o'clock there will be a meeting for anyone who wants to be involved and is involved in prep school. That is not a voluntary meeting. That is, we, we've got important things to cover, so anybody involved needs to move heaven and earth to be there so they know what's going on. Uh, so that covers that. The Chaffer's Pastors Conference is, is coming up in a month, and we need volunteers to work at various levels. So go to the uh, deanbibleministries.org slash news page. Go to the Chaffer registration page, and you can indicate there if you wish to volunteer. All of that is important. Now, there are two things that are weighing heavy on my mind, and the first has to do with the fact that there are, of course, rumors of a uh, major Russian offensive against Ukraine coming up, so we need to be especially in prayer for that. Just remember where we were a year ago. There were rumors that there would be a war, and there is a war. And <clears throat> there's a, uh, uh, but we have the same problems, and that is that it's a nasty time to try to start a war, especially if you want to use tanks. In a warm winter, where the fields are muck. So we just pray that they make foolish decisions. The reports that we've had from people that uh, have been with the church and with the uh, uh, school over there that are serving in the military are that um, that the captured soldiers, the soldiers are capturing are drunks. They're on drugs. They don't want to be there. They're depressed. They're homesick. There's all kinds of problems. That's been going on throughout. The, the people don't want to be there, and the reports we've got from one missionary we support that is in, we support through prayer, who is in Moscow, says that the peop, that every month there, the war is more unpopular. So we just need to pray that that will all continue, and God will uh, <clears throat> prevent them from being able to do uh, what they need to do. There was an excellent article in Gatestone Report. If you don't get that, you should and stay up to date with what's happening in the world. An analysis that came out this week on uh, understanding, uh, and I'm getting a couple articles confused, but it was an excellent analysis on what will happen if Ukraine goes down. There's not enough of articles or analysis telling, informing the world of what will happen if Ukraine collapses. And um, the threats of Putin are that he's going to take Moldova, which is already pro-Soviet, and then he'll go after the Baltic republics, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, and then he'll start going for for Poland and others. So the dominoes will fall. I woke up uh, almost a year ago, and I thought I'd heard the first shots, the opening shots of World War III, and I still believe that. Uh, if you are a student of history, you realize that the World War II started with the Japanese invasion of Manchuria in about 1932 or 1933, and if we had stopped Hitler at the Anschluss, which is when he took over and they moved into Austria, we would not have had World War II. But those things happened long before the official beginnings of the war. So that is what we're looking at, and so we know God is in charge, God is in control, and God can thwart the plans of men, and he does. So that's the first thing that weighs heavy on me. The other thing that weighs heavy on me is I got a call from Charlie Clough yesterday, or yes, yesterday was Monday, yes. And if you remember, and I meant to get this, uh, there's a pamphlet that we have here called the, past, the, the Crisis in the Pastorate or the Pastoral Crisis, something like that, which was based on a message that I gave in Bible class uh, almost 20 years ago. And they have copies of that. Do we have any copies around here? Okay, they have copies of that uh, out. And Charlie ordered a copy of that. 
uh, because their church, the pastor of their church, uh, retired uh, several months ago, and he's been on the pastoral search committee, and they're throwing almost all of their resumes in the trash because they're not getting resumes from anybody who has any biblical training or any seminary training or even Bible college training or, goodness gracious, they don't even have vacation Bible school training. And this is why Chafer Seminary exists. And we probably receive one or two requests a month from churches who are uh, searching for a pastor who can teach the Word. And we have a generation of men who are going to seminary, at least uh, with, with Chafer, who are already in their 40s and have spent most of their life in another career. Dan Ingram, I don't think Dan would mind me telling this story. Dan Ingram went to Cedarville um, Bible College. I think that's what it was called. It's now Cedarville University which was a Bible college of the Greater Association of Regular Baptists, and it's located up in Cedarville, Ohio, and it was in the 70s and still is a fairly good school. It's a better school back then as everything was. And he was mentored by a very solid Greek professor who was who in, endorsed his application to Dallas Seminary, and he was accepted at Dallas for matriculation in 1974. But he felt like he had a duty to his country to serve in the Marine Corps. And that was what he initially said. He would be in the Marines for four years. It turned into 28 years. And he told me in a conversation one day, he said, I'm never going to know what you know because I spent 28 years not learning what you learned. And that is a sad reality that we have. We have many men who instead of having the bold spiritual courage to pack their bags and move across the country to a sound seminary, they said, well, I need, and I I hit 20 years ago, 25 years ago, and I went to Connecticut. I was astounded how many people said, I think I have the gift, but I want to, don't they have something online? I just don't want to go to seminary. No courage, no faith. And I have said for 25 years, if a man doesn't have faith to trust God to move across the, fam- the country and go to school and get the education, he will have difficulty trusting God to do what needs to be done for a local church. I will never forget the testimonies that were given at, when I was a senior at Dallas before graduation of a classmate of mine. I had no idea any about this. We were just in classes together, so we didn't really know each other well. And he said that he had been ex- accepted to start seminary in the fall of 1975. But his wife was pregnant, so they decided that they would not come because they had no idea how God could take care of them uh, if she were pregnant and had a child. So they did not come to seminary. She had a miscarriage. So they came, and he was in my class, started in the fall of 1976. Halfway through the year, she got pregnant. Twins. He said there were only a few days that they just had beans and rice to eat. They never went hungry. They always paid their bills on time. Their tuition was always paid. God took care of them, and he graduated on time without debt. God can do that. But men have to trust God to do that. And they have to make that their priority, that they want to serve the Lord and not serve man. And unfortunately, we live in a culture where a lot of men, because this is the culture we live in, when I did, I read this study 30 years ago, that the maturity level of a male in in the 1885 would reach emotional maturity at 14 and sexual maturity at 18. That reversed by the 60s, by the 1960s. By the 1980s, men were reaching puberty at 12 
and they were not reaching emotional maturity until 20. It's more like 30 now. And so we're reaping the consequences of a collapsing culture. And so we have a generation of Christian men who we all made bad decisions. I'm not being judgmental. Who probably made uh, bad decisions from a position of weakness because, unfortunately, we all, to some degree, are products of our culture. That doesn't excuse us and doesn't... uh, uh, remove our responsibility, but that's what happens. There are great and wonderful exceptions to that because there are so many really solid Christian families who are training up their children, but they are not assuming the mantle of the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher, and we need to be in prayer for that because we are in a crisis situation where there are hundreds and hundreds of small churches, solid churches, that cannot find a pastor. And I read a report just recently talking about the, uh, something like uh, f- five or 6,000 churches closed at, uh, in this last year. And that's been true over the over the years, there have been a number of churches that have been planted, but uh, we've been in a negative. I've read articles like that for 20 years. We are in a negative church growth where fewer churches are starting than are closing. And so we need to be in prayer, in prayer for all of these things. So we need to be in prayer for Ukraine. We need to be in prayer for uh, just men who will take the challenge and have the spiritual courage to do what it takes to become trained and educated. When Dan made that comment to me, during those 28 years that he uh, was in the military, and I'm not setting myself up as something special, I'm looking at my friends like you know that you know, like Tommy Ice, Randy Price. We were getting multiple graduate degrees studying cross-disciplinary. Randy moved to Israel, got a second master's degree, and studied at the Hebrew University there, lived in Israel for nine years, came back, got his Ph.D. in Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Texas. I don't see men who have a vision for that kind of excellence in academia. And if we don't have men with that kind of uh, vision then they they provide the backbone of studies and books and theological articles and but they have to be educated and our nation is not producing well educated uh people to go to seminary and i can tell you stories of how bad the how the level of academic expectation at seminaries has dropped when I started at Dallas in 1975, I was one of 200 accepted out of uh, 1,400, 1,200, 1,400 applications. Two years after I graduated, there were three less applicants for the Masters of Theology program than there were slots. You're not picking quality people at that point. You're just getting everybody who will apply so you can pay your bills, and then you're expanding through different short, shorter two-year degree programs so that you can get more money to in to pay your bills, and quality is lost. And that's what's happened. So we have to be in prayer for this. And so let's uh, take a few moments before we get into our study tonight, and we'll make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, and then I will take us before the throne of grace. Uh, Father, tonight we come before you because we look out on across the horizon of the way things are in our world today, and we realize that 
that it's hanging by a thread, but the reality is that it's always been hanging by a thread, that just that the veneer of some sort of of success has been ripped away, and we see just the work of Satan and the work of the cosmic system upon the culture of this of Western civilization, and we see how it is so weak and tenuous, and that this has impacted the church in so many ways. But you are so mighty, and you are so powerful. You can raise up people. Uh, that you can make the stones praise your name. And so, Father, we ought not ever be discouraged. We ought not, not, not ever get our eyes, eyes on the waves, but we need to get our eyes and keep our eyes on, focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his church, and he can do a pretty good job of keeping it squared away. And so we look at it from our limited, finite perspective. We don't understand the whole plan, and we don't see the whole plan. But, Father, from our perspective, we need men, men who have great spiritual courage, men who are willing to stand in the gap, men who are willing to uh, do what it takes to excel in biblical study and to learn the languages and to learn theology and stay the course and be faithful and true to the doctrine that has been passed down, that we are to commit this body of truth to faithful men, and we can't find too many faithful men, but we stand ready to commit this and to teach this and to prepare them. So, Father, there is a great need there. And then we look at what is going on in the world in terms of geopolitics, we see various things developing. We see problems with Iran that have been going on for a number of years under the mullahs. We look at the war between Russia and Ukraine, and so many people are fearful that this could develop into a major war. There could be a nuclear war, and yet we are not to be motivated by fear. You have not given, given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of courage, and we are to stand stand strong and stand tall for the truth and shine the light of your word on the darkness of our culture. And so, Father, we pray for the believers that we know in Ukraine, for their witness. We pray that it might be magnified and that that uh, not only our publications but many other publications may be spread uh, throughout that country. There may, may be a great genuine revival and turning of people to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, for that ultimately is our only hope, that our trust is not in armaments, our trust is not in technology, our not, trust is not in uh, air defense weapons, our tanks, all of those things are good and may be means to an end, but without a focus on truth, they, they are not the answer. The answer is in your word. So we pray for those people in Ukraine, and we pray that this may be a wake-up call. This is fearful, and people in times of fear tend to turn back to the truth. And if they do not, then they are worthy of judgment. So, Father, we bring these things before your throne of grace, and as we study your word tonight, we may, may we be encouraged as we learn that this is nothing new, that generation after generation have gone through these things, and it's a test for believers to be faithful, and a test for us to remember that we have the joy, uh, the happiness, the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ as our legacy. And may we rejoice that we get to live in such times with such opportunities. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to Judges. Judges chapter 14. So we're going to have a bit of a review as we get started because what we're seeing is that God is in control even though things were really dark in, in the time of Israel. As we look at the first, go back to the first verse in Judges 13.1, we realize that the nation of Israel has been, at least the southwestern part, has been under the domination of the Philistines and that this was going on for 40 years. Think about that. It is uh, 2023. That would be uh, as if we were under the uh, heel of a foreign tyrant uh, since 1983. That's half of most of our lives and all of the lives of some of you. So that is a 
that is a wake-up call. It was miserable. Their economy, their uh, the, the, just the, they were, we learned from, uh, 1 Samuel that the Philistines would not let them have blacksmiths so that they couldn't have iron weapons, and that meant they couldn't have iron tools for agriculture. It was a dark time, and God is going to raise up a leader who's not going to be the type of leader that others had, that he had raised up during this period, because he's not going to bring about deliverance. It's not going to come for probably another uh, 20 to 40 years, and it will come with David, and David isn't even born yet. So this is a difficult time. So when we get our eyes on the negatives of what's going on today, it's nothing new. Go read Isaiah and Jeremiah and some of the other prophets, and it's as dark and much worse than here. People say, I hear this all the time, the Lord's going to come back soon. It can't get much worse. Go read your Bible. It can get a lot worse. Cheer up. It's pretty good compared to what it was like under Ahaz or Manasseh in Israel during those last years. Manasseh ruled for 40 years. So it's 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 great right now, and we are privileged and 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 blessed. And so God raises up Samson to function as a bull in a china closet. And sometimes those are the kinds of leaders that God raises up, and um, He's going to uh, carry out His plan. And so we can trust in that. What we have to do is make sure we're oriented to that plan, and that we're going to stay the course. A key verse when we get into Judges 14.4 that helps us understand what's happening because his parents didn't understand what was happening as he goes off to Timnah and finds some uh, sexy, hot Philistine gal and he wants to get uh, married. And his uh, the writer of Judges inserts this editorial comment in verse 4, but his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord. That doesn't mean that Samson's sinful lust for the unbelieving, uncircumcised Philistine woman was um, uh, was a godly thing. It wasn't, but God was going to use uh, his sinful, arrogant, insolent life and attitude to cause Israel to not be able to assimilate to the paganism of the Philistines. So there's all kinds of ways that God can move and work to prevent the bad guys from ultimately gaining control. And so his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord that he was seeking, that is, God was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. For at that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel. So he's going to use uh, Samson to disrupt the status quo, disrupt peace, and disrupt tranquility. We know that God always does the right thing. Abraham asked the rhetorical question of God in Genesis 18.25b, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? It's formed in the way that it's expecting an affirmative answer. God is perfect righteousness. He will always do the right thing, and we just can't see all the factors that go in, but he's omniscient. And the last time I checked, most of us are a long way uh, from sometimes even being cognitively conscious. So uh, God is aware of what is going on, and he's working out his plan. And he tells us in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we need to learn to trust God. So last time, in terms of just an overview, and we didn't finish all of this, I gave you a summary of chapters 14 and 15. Then second, began to explain the intricate, complicated plot with a view to getting insight into the interplay between God's sovereign will and our volition. So Samson is volitionally free. 
He is making decisions based on what he wants, what's right in his own eyes. And God is using that to accomplish his will. So he's not making Samson do anything. He's using Samson. The trouble is, that happens in our lives. And see, if Samson had just obeyed the Lord, a lot more could have been accomplished, and Samson would have had even more blessing. So when we're disobedient... God still uses it to accomplish his will. It's just that it's not through us. It's in spite of us. Third thing was to remind us of two things, and always keep this in your mind. If God's infinite grace, he is so good to us. We can look around at all kinds of negative things. That's why I quit watching the news. It's never good. But God's doing wonderful things. And we see that, and so we need to be uh, excited about that. Um, God's grace to sinners and how God works behind the scenes to bring about his plan. So we don't need to see how he's doing it. We just need to trust him and focus on our little uh, part of the the world. So just... Chapter 13 ends with the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon uh, Samson at Mahanadan between Zor and Eshtaol, and then the conclusion of this section, so he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. This movement by God on Samson is what gets everything moving. And everything moves through uh, 14, 15, and then 16 because of what happens here. This starts the ball rolling. And we looked at that. And so uh, we're looking at the geography that comes into play. And so over here we have Eshtaol and Zora, And this is where Mahana of Dan, that's when you have these hyphenated words, Here's the tribal allotment that was assigned to Dan um, in uh, in Joshua's time, but they never quite took it. Down here you have the uh, the coastal plain. It's the, called the Shephelah. And in the Shephelah you have coastal plain where uh, uh, chariots with iron wheels can maneuver. Uh, that was the, the, the light armor of that day, the light cal- uh, or the heavy cavalry of that day. And so they can maneuver. And so the Israelites didn't have that, so they were defeated. But you can see from the uh, uh, lines and everything along through here that going up into the hill country, uh, the, ta- uh, the, the chariots just didn't have that much room to maneuver. And so the Israelites were able to hold them off. And this is kind of the area. Timna is Philistine. Of course, Ekron Gath and the coastal cities are Philistine. And then Eshtaol, Zorah, Beth Shemesh, Azekah. This is all uh, Israelite. So Samson goes down to Timna. Saw a woman in Timna of the daughters, uh, daughters of the Philistines. And it's it's important to look at that word saw because in the the technical phrase in the key verses in judges that there was no king in Israel everyone did what was what right in their own eyes seeing that those seeing words fit together in uh, reemphasizing the theme of the book so he goes down and he looks at this woman and uh, he gets all excited, goes back home, up back uphill uh, to his parents. And he says, uh, I've seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me for a wife. And he's very insolent and arrogant towards his parents and telling them that, that you know, you have to do this. Um, uh, you have to do this for me. Now... This Philistine woman captured his eye. Now, throughout the history of interpretation of Samson, as I've told you, is that Christians have often tried to make everything in Samson's life look good. They want to put a positive twist on it because they 
misunderstand what's going on in Judges. They misunderstand Hebrews 11, and they think, well, if they're mentioned in Hebrews 11, then that means they must have done everything right. And so they try to uh, twist things. Well, they didn't start that. The rabbis started that, as a matter of fact. And the rabbis uh, refused to find any fault with anything Samson did, so they claimed that Samson was not doing anything shameful here. Uh, that he understood, uh, they, they, they came up with this strange twist that he was really fulfilling, um, uh, Jacob's prophecy about, uh, the, the, the serpent and relationship to the tribe of Dan in Genesis 49:17. And so he's really, uh, sort of going undercover to fake it like he's going to be part of the Philistine culture so that he can then uh, turn that against them. Uh, but that's not really what's hap- happening. Uh, he is uh, being used by God and... Uh, uh, they even have, uh, they even viewed the marriage that she had secretly converted to Judaism and so that he's not violating anything by, by marrying a Philistine woman and that, um, because it's inconceivable to them, they lack an understanding of total depravity. Uh, they, uh, it's inconceivable to them that a Nazarite would want to marry a Gentile, uh, pagan woman. And his parents had a little trouble, too. They, they're basically in verse 3 when they say, uh, isn't there a woman among the daughters of your brethren? They say, why can't you find just a good Jewish girl? And uh, he says to his dad, get her for me. And the verb there really could be translated, take her for me. He, he's he's um, very arrogant, and he's dictating to his parents uh, what they should they should do. And um, uh, the rabbis uh, mistranslate this this verse as that that the woman was upright in his eyes, and um, and what it means it uses the same verb yashar that is used in those two other verses in um, in in Judges that talk about the, everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. It's this verb yashar. So this attempt to try to manipulate the text to come out that they're really doing something good, it's not as bad as you think, uh, has done a great disservice uh, both to Jews and to Christians uh, over the years. So this is what's happening, and it's a violation of the laws I talked about last time. We looked about what the at what the Bible teaches about intermarriage in Israel, and only I only want to remind you of the last two points. The Mosaic Law made it very clear that Jews were not to marry a non-Jew, not for racial reasons, but for it was they weren't to have a. Uh, a marriage with a pagan woman or a pagan man. Uh, the only exception was if that Gentile was willing to uh, become uh, under the Mosaic Covenant and uh, be a worshiper of Yahweh. And it holds true in the New Testament as well. Believers are not to marry unbelievers. Believers should not even go out on dates with unbelievers. Uh, you should not even develop friendships when you're young because you're too easily influenced with unbelievers. I have some very close friends now that are unbelievers, but trust me, we know where the lines are drawn. And the hope and prayer is that I can have uh, a witness with these these friends. But we're told not to be in this kind of a close partnership with unbelievers in Second Corinthians six fourteen. Do not become bound together with unbelievers, and that is not just marriage, although that's the primary thing that's looked at there. It can involve other levels of partnership and friendship. We must always be careful. So uh, Paul writes, for what partnership has 
righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? The answer is none. So we are to be very careful to protect ourselves and for our, to teach that to our children. And that it was the last point that we need to teach kids. First uh, Corinthians fifteen thirty three. If I heard this once when I was an adolescent, I heard it ten thousand times. Bad company corrupts good morals. That's what God says. That's you know my parents would say that. That's not our opinion. That's what God says. And that was reinforced. I remember many times at Camp Penile, I remember counselors and others that would repeat this verse and how important that was. So what happens is that you have these two plots going on. First of all, there's the hot plot where uh, Samson is interested in the hot Philistine chick down in uh, Timnah. And then there's the plot related to the lion. And the two are going to come together by the end of the chapter. And so what happens is, um, let's look at verse um, verse 4. Uh, after um, he tells uh, his parents to uh, go get that woman for, for him because she is right in my eyes, then we have the parenthetical editorial comment from the writer that this was of the Lord seeking to uh, cause a problem to stir up trouble uh, with the Philistines. So in verse 5, he said, we read, So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. And I raised the question, what's, what's happening there? He comes to the vineyards. He doesn't say he goes into them or doesn't. It's just left undefined. But then um, we recognize that he must have separated from his parents because in the last part of verse 5, it says, a young lion came roaring toward him. And, of course, uh, later it will say that... that um, uh, he didn't tell his parents about this. So we know that his parents weren't with him. And um, so the young lion comes roaring, and this is the uh, second time the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him or rushes upon him mightily so that he tore him as one tears a kid. That is a young goat where he just grabs the hind legs and rips him in two. Uh, though he had no weapon in his hands. But, of course, he didn't tell his uh, parents what uh, what he had done. And that's going to become a problem, a slight problem for them. They're not aware of it, but it will develop into, into a problem. So the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. Now... Um, the rabbis deal with this passage by saying that the parents took Samson to the vineyards only to show how the Philistines planted wheat among the vineyards, a mixture that was forbidden by the law of Moses. But the context shows that um, that he may or may not have entered. I'm not sure whether he entered, but there's no mention of wheat anywhere in the story, so this is just a problem that the uh, rabbis tend to uh, make up things as they go along at times. So, but they, it's clear that he comes to the vineyards and he, that just raises red flags by its, uh, by its very mention. Uh, the word for lion, there are actually five different words for a lion and this one is a kafir arya. Arya is a general term for a fairly mature lion, uh, Kefir, K-E-P-H-I-R, is a, a young lion that has just right on the edge of moving from being a cub to being a, an adult. And in verse 7 we read, So he went down and that's um, went down and talked to the woman. She looked good to Samson. So that's the second time we have this same verbiage that she was right in Samson's eyes and reminding us, of course, that everyone in Israel was doing what was right in their own eyes. So that's not a good thing. 
when we understand the connection of the vocabulary, we know that this is a a negative comment about Samson wanting us to know that he's operating on moral relativism, he's operating on sexual lust, and he's not operating on uh, any desire to serve serve the Lord. First uh, John two sixteen and seventeen tell us that for all that is in the world, and it breaks sin down into three categories the lust of the flesh, and that can relate to not only sexual lust, but any sort of lust that is related to our body. It can be a lust for drugs. It can be a lust for food. It can be a lust for alcohol. It can be a sexual lust, but it is uh, based in, in, in our physical body. And the second is the lust of the eye. So now this is talking about mental attitude lust. And this can be uh, greed, which can be expressed in materialism lust. It can be expressed as money lust. But it's the lust for wealth, the lust for power. The Bible does not say that money is the root of all evil. It says the desire for money, the lust for money, is the root of all evil. And so we have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and then the third is the pride of life, just arrogance, that we can live apart from God. We don't have to do this radical orientation to the Bible. We don't need to really let ourselves be totally um, uh, totally overhauled by the Holy Spirit in, trans- in uh, transforming us into the character of Christ. Let me just get a little, just enough of Christianity to where I know I'm going to go to heaven, maybe a little bit more so I'm not embarrassed at the judgment seat of Christ, but let, let's not take it too seriously. And that's how a lot of Christians are. They are so focused on living and enjoying all of the things that can be in this life that they don't live in light of eternity. They have a very short-sighted uh, understanding of things. And uh, it's sort of like you probably heard your mother say something like this. I heard my mother say, you have to think past the end of your nose. In other words, you have to think further down the road. You can't just think in terms of immediate gratification. But, of course, we're all products of of the immediate gratification uh, that dominates our, our, our culture. Now, what happens in verse 8 is we go back to the lion uh, theme and the lion subplot. So sometime later, we don't know how long it was. It could have been as much as four or five months. If this occurs in the spring and the period of time in between is in the summer, and some of us here have been uh, in places in the Negev where we have crossed. Uh, I remember the first trip we crossed the border back from Jordan across at Elat, and it was like walking. It, it was like being outside of a furnace and walking into a hairdryer. It was hot. And if you've got a, a hot wind like that, you're going to dry out a, cork, a carcass really quick. So it, it's likely this is not uh, something that would have been uh, real, very normal, but God could easily could have the timing and everything. God was overseeing this so that the carcass of the lion uh, dried out and mummified very quickly. And then a sw- we're told a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion. Now, that doesn't look like an unusual thing to you reading that in English. But what's unusual is this word for swarm. The word for swarm is the Hebrew word edah, which is only used a couple of times in the Old Testament. There's another word that is the normal word for a, a swarm of bees, uh, but this isn't it. This is a word that is normally used to describe a community of people. So that grabs our attention. That's an odd word to use in, in that particular phrase. 
And so uh, what this is doing is picturing something about the fact that um, that here in an environment of decay and uh, decomposition, there's this community of bees that are existing and producing something that is sweet and desirable. That's how Israel as a community of believers was supposed to function within a world of decomp and decay so that they could provide light to the world. And they failed at that many times. Um, so there's something that's, that is God is trying to catch attention here. The writer here is trying to catch our attention by, by utilizing this particular word. And so what Samson does is he violates... Uh, clearly violates his Nazarite vow at this point, and he is going to handle a carcass, which is a violation. And he uh, takes some of it in his hands, he scoops it up, and he eats it, and he comes to his parents, who must not have been far away, or he would have eaten it all up, and it would have all fallen off of his hand, so they must be somewhat close by. But he doesn't tell them where it came from, because eating... The, the honey that's been in a carcass is makes it unclean. It's not kosher. It's traif. And so he's going to uh, uh, ceremonially, ritually defile his parents by giving him this honey to eat. So he's just a lovely child, lovely son. And... Uh, uh, he just, just, he, he just, there's not a picture of something of a positive spiritual value here. God's using him that way. So we go to the next verse. And, uh, so his father goes down to visit the, the woman in Timnah. And Samson, we're told, prepares a feast there. So this is the, uh, this is the, uh, marriage feast or the wedding feast. And so they're going to have a party. And what we learn from the word that is used here, the Hebrew word here, suggests that this is a several-day-in-length party over a week because it lasts three or four days and then another seven days, so it goes on, and it is a drinking party. Again, Samson is not supposed to partake of either uh, wine or strong drink. Strong drink is not uh, a distilled alcoholic beverage in the scripture. The word in Hebrew for strong drink means barley beer. That's that's what they had. They had beer and they had wine, and uh, so there. It's very likely that, that it's a strong suggestion here that he's again violating his vow. He just doesn't care about spiritual things or what God thinks or about his vow. That's just not any kind uh, of priority for him. And it says, um, Samson prepared a feast there as young men were accustomed to do. Now, this just really loses a lot in translation. And it loses a lot in translation because of uh, there's a distinctive word that is used here, and it's not just saying, oh, well, this is the custom of young men at that time. Uh, as we would talk about it today, well, this is what happens. You go out and you have a bachelor party. Well, that's what young men do before they get married. No, the word there is the word bacharim. Some of you say, oh, I've heard that word before. The word bakarim is a plural word because it's talking about young men, and um, and it refers to choice or select young men. It is used consistently in the book of Judges to refer not just to nice young men who are the buddies of the bridegroom who are just going to have a bachelor party, but it refers to choice military men. There is a rumble of a deep note of danger that you should be hearing when you read that. But the way it's translated into English, you're not going to hear anything or catch the point. Is that these guys are, are a, a military group. And the Philistines are somewhat, and it tells us that the Philistines are suspicious of Samson. And so they've got their, 
uh, select men, their choice men, their special troops uh, surrounding him here, and they not only do they uh, is that indicated by the word that is used there, but in verse eleven it says, "When the Philistines saw him, they brought thirty uh, men to accompany him." The, the word for men there is thirty companions. But with the connection with the previous word, the implication is that they want to make sure they've got enough men there to take care of Samson if something happens. They are uh, to serve as bodyguards, not bodyguards in the normal sense. See, what you would have, uh, we go to a passage in the New Testament, Matthew 9.15, where Jesus talks about the friends of the bridegroom. So these would be the, the groomsmen, okay? But it's, that's not what's going on here. It's, it's an unusual situation, and, and there is the hint of a threat that is going on at that time. And it suggests that the Philistines are already afraid of him, and they don't want to take any chances, so they want to make sure that he is outnumbered. Now, the rabbis, interestingly enough, claim this is all just camouflage uh, and that to all outward appearances he had already broken with the Jewish people and intermarried uh, with with the Philistines um, because that that's just so he can get in there, sort of go undercover, and then uh, then cause cause tr- trouble. So here he is in this situation, and he decides that he may take a little advantage of it. So then we have the wager and the riddle. And this is the thrust of the next uh, eight or nine verses for the rest of the chapter, is the uh, wager, the riddle, and then the result. So Samson says, well, let let me pose a riddle to you. Now, a riddle is something that within its structure, if one applies enough uh, cerebral energy to it, you can figure out what the answer is. It's something that is, that's possible. But this is a, uh, an unfair riddle because Samson's going to make this little poem, this little ditty up out of thin air, but it relates to something that only he knows. So that's not a fair riddle. So he's stacking the deck in his favor. He says, let me pose a riddle to you, and if you can correctly solve and explain it to me within the seven days of the feast, so that's the total length of the feast, then I'll give you a 30, I'll give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. Uh, so... Literally what he says is a phrase, an idiom in the Hebrew that is used several other places, uh, and it basically means, let me riddle you a riddle. It's used um, the way the Queen of Sheba says the same thing to uh, Solomon in 1 Kings uh, 10.1. So that's that's not an uncommon uh, idiom. So he uh, is going to set this up in the 30 linen garments. The word there uh, relates to a a large rectangular pieces of fine linen, which were worn next to the body either by day or night. And then the 30 changes of clothing uh, relates to the outer festive garments that would be worn during a feast or special occasions like a wedding. So it's it's sort of like I'm going to give you the best uh, best new pair of underwear, and then I'm going to buy tuxes and the, everything for everybody. So this is something that would have been costly. And then he says, but if you can't explain it to me, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. And so they thought about it, and they said, well, we can figure it out. So they have their arrogances blinded them, and they tell him to go ahead and pose uh, pose the riddle. So this is the riddle in verse 14. He said to them, uh, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. So the eater, of course, we think of... Uh, the lion that came something to eat, and that would be the honey. Out of the strong came something sweet. Another way this is translated 
as out of the eater came forth eats, out of the strong came forth sweet. So trying to put it into English in the kind of rhythm and the kind of uh, pattern that it would have uh, would have had in the uh, in, in the English. So this is the uh, riddle. Now there are different guesses as to what the Philistines might have thought of this, and uh, they get into some pretty strange speculation. So I'm not going to get into that. But three days go by, the first three days of this festival, and uh, nobody can get it, and they're frustrated, and they get very frustrated. And so it came to pass on the seventh day. Now, this is where I have this question. For three days they couldn't explain the riddle, but it came to pass on the seventh day, so it goes beyond that. To the last day, I guess, and then they come to Samson's wife and they say, entice your husband. They're basically extorting her or uh, intimidating her because they're going to threaten her. If you don't get the answer out of him, then we're going to uh, burn you and your father's house with fire. They're eventually going to do that anyway. You never give in to intimidation or extortion. And that's what's happening. So do whatever you can to seduce him. Then Samson's wife wept on him. So she's going to apply the emotional pressure of a woman weeping and crying and uh, the verbal pressure. You don't love me. If you loved me, you'd tell me all about it. You, would, you wouldn't keep these secrets. And so that's what, what she says. You just hate me. You don't love me. And so he finally gives in to the incessant nagging. And verse 17, Now she had wept on him the seven days while their feast lasted, and it happened on the seventh day that he told her. He finally broke down, and he gave it up. And then she goes immediately over to uh, her uh, people and gives it up and tells them. So the men of the city, verse 18, come to him on the seventh day, and they have posed their little poem, and they say, What is sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? And he says, basically what he's saying is, You've cheated. You've extorted this out of my wife. If you had not plowed with my heifer, I don't know a wife or girlfriend or fiancé who would quite appreciate that analogy. You have plowed with my heifer. You would not have solved my riddle. So he knows that they cheated. They know he knows that they cheated. And then in verse 19, we see God enter the picture again. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him mightily. That's my translation of the Hebrew word here, tzalak, which means to rush upon. The same thing is, same word is used when the Spirit rushes upon Saul in 1 Samuel 10, 6. Uh, the Lord rushed upon him mightily, and he goes down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of their men. So this is the map. Uh, he's been up here in Timnah, so follow the red line. And he goes down through the cities to Ashkelon. And there he is going to um, uh, kill 30 of their men, take their apparel. So he's not just going down and picking up 30 homeless men down on the in the city square. He is going to take 30 men who are extremely well-dressed. So he's taking out the upper echelon of the society in uh, uh, Ashkelon. And he took their clothes back and gave, gave those changes of clothes to those who explained the riddle. And it says his anger was aroused. Well, actually, literally, it says his nose burned. Remember, I keep explaining that idiom to you. That is how it is expressed literally in Hebrew, but it meant that he was, he was it's a very picturesque image there. And he goes back up to his father's house. And the result of this is that apparently 
his wife's father thought, well, he was done with her, but he wasn't. And he just is going back to sort of nurse his wounds, his wounded ego. And his wife's given to uh, his best man. And time goes by, maybe two or three months, and he's going to go back. And he is going to then um, ask for his wife uh, to come back. So this brings us to the end of chapter 14. What we have seen is that on the one hand, you have Samson making his decisions from his own volition, but God is using that and working through other circumstances to bring about a situation where he starts a one-man war against the Philistines. And the result is this peace and tranquility that's been going on for a while as the Israelites are basically succumbing to the pressure of the Philistine culture, and God is going to prevent that from happening. So as a result of this, it gets to the time of the wheat harvest at the beginning of chapter 15, and then he is going to go back and try to make up with his wife only to discover that she's been given away to his best man. So we'll pick up with chapter 15 uh, next uh, Tuesday night. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study uh, through this, and we recognize that your hand is always at work. And we look out on the surface of circumstances and situations and elections and uh, economic uh, negative news and all kinds of things. And we need to just relax and know it's all under your control and that you're going to take care of us and you're going to provide for us and that we ought not get concerned and we just need to do our best with what we have, trust in you, and continue to walk with you, and you're going to make our path straight. It's just simple faith rest drill. But not like Samson. We're not going to yield to the uh, lust and anger that uh, often arises from our sin nature as we see what's going on. Uh, we shouldn't justify that, and we just need to relax and trust you and shine as lights in the midst of this wicked and perverse generation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.